You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Uh, if you've been here for a while, you heard me interview a guy named Sam Quinones a few years ago about a book called Dreamland. It was a, a story about Oxycontin, a story about heroin, and a story about uh, really the, the transformation of America's communities, a challenge that we collectively face um, not just in Appalachia, not just in the South, not just along the Mexican border, but in growing numbers of communities across North America. Sam has published a new book. The book is called The Least of Us. Those of you that are, are gospel readers will recognize the kind of the inspiration for the phrase, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. I've asked Sam if he would come back on the podcast to chat about this book. And here he is, Sam Quinones. Welcome to the Strong Downs Podcast. Welcome back. Oh, well, it's so great to be here with you, Chuck. I love your podcast. And uh, as an old City Hall reporter, I'm also fascinated by lots of the planning topics that you, uh, you address here, too. So thanks very much for your interest in my work. Well, thank you. That comes through in the book. It's interesting because I think there is a social worker kind of way of looking at the issue of addiction. And there's a reporter way, like a DEA officer kind of prism of looking at addiction. You certainly have a Venn diagram that includes both of those, but it also includes this really fascinating community aspect that comes through really well. Can can you talk a little bit about maybe your background? You say you're a city, former city hall reporter. How, how did you get onto this beat or onto this topic? I did for a while cover City Hall for the Orange County Register. I covered uh, Costa Mesa, City of Costa Mesa in Orange County and and Newport Mesa School District. But probably the transformative job in my life was uh, being a crime reporter in the town of Stockton, California. That was my grad school. I wrote four stories a day for four years. It was the middle of the, of the uh, crack epidemic. And um, it also made me understand that I really needed to improve my Spanish, which was very not very good. And because of that, uh, I mean, Stockton was a uh, is an agricultural town. A lot of Mexican migrants up there uh, in the agricultural workforce, and and it just kind of directed me towards the rest of my career, which was really about immigration crime issues. Uh, then later on, drug trafficking. I went down to Mexico just initially to just study Spanish a little bit, and I ended up staying for 10 years. Three months was the idea, and then I ended up staying for 10 years, wrote two books about Mexico. It was a tr- another transformative career move, and and one that I'm very, very happy I made. Then I came back in, the, in 2004 to work for the LA Times. I'm from Los Angeles area, and it was there that the when I when I arrived shortly thereafter that the drug war kicked off in Mexico, very, very savage stuff, something I had never seen in 10 years, beheadings and all that really crazy. I'd never seen anything like that it didn't exist in Mexico when I was down there. And I began I was on a team of reporters and one of the covering the 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 drug wars in Mexico. And I began to understand that we were now seeing record seizures of heroin 
And that made zero sense to me because I thought we'd last used heroin in the 70s, you know, all French Connection and all those stories, right? Serpico, great movies out of New York about heroin and all this kind of stuff. But that was the 70s. And so why would we be getting back into it? And that led me to first write about a town that I later included in the in my book Dreamland, as you mentioned, about a town where everybody had a method for selling heroin retail that was very much like pizza delivery with a with an operator standing by, addicts would call, operator would dispatch a driver with uh, retail quantities, small, small retail quantities of heroin. And, and these this, this one town mastered this method, then also mastered its expansion, not just in LA, but up to Portland, Reno, Salt Lake, and then eventually across the Mississippi River, river out to uh, Columbus, Cincinnati, Charlotte, places like that. It was a fascinating story. But along the way, I began to understand why we had this big issue of of heroin. And that was because we had done something I was totally oblivious to. And that was the whole expand the revolution. I call it the revolution of opioids in pain in American pain management, the prescription opioid painkiller and was creating this new market a, a whole new population of people addicted to the to, to opioids and heroin uh, is a chemical cousin of a lot of the drugs used in these in these pills so people were getting addicted in the pills switching to heroin and finally i understood why we had this expansion along the way i want to say this though it was a fascinating thing because i saw this at the very community level when i was writing dreamland i really despaired it was very tough because people at the local level did not want to talk about it it was a real silence and uh, particularly if the family members were involved, nobody wants, you know, very difficult. And I really thought, well, I'm going to be on to another book after I finish this one very quickly, because this is not an issue the country wants to face. Well, when Dreamland came out, to our great surprise in my house, I began to get all these invitations to come speak. You began to see a real expansion of community awareness of this topic in a way that did not exist just a year before, two years before when I was writing the book. It was very notable to me because uh, I'd lived it. And and as time went on, I began to get many, many more speaking engagements. Every year was more and more. All these small towns, a lot of uh, conferences, professional conferences, public health, social workers, judges, on and on, everybody. It, and you began to see budget devoted to this. You began to see lawsuits. When I when I finished Dreamland, there were three lawsuits, and all of them were on hold against drug companies. And now you get uh, you very quickly within a year or two of the book coming. I think maybe two years. You began to see like hundreds and hundreds of tribes, counties, towns, and then eventually attorneys general suing with subpoena power. And now you begin to see this enormous amounts of money being dislodged from a lot of these companies. But along the way, I began to realize that the, that the story itself was also changing. It was no longer pain pills to heroin. The underworld in Mexico had really taken over the story by then. By, I'd say, 2017, you definitely began to see this and and just amping up after that. And you began to see the reflection of of a radical revolution down in Mexico in the trafficking world away from plant based drugs and towards synthetics made only with chemicals. And eventually, of course, the main two of those were methamphetamine and and fentanyl. And that these drugs weren't just new drugs they transformed everything 
it was almost like you nothing that you thought about drugs before this was was quite as applicable to these two because the supplies first of all were massive staggering continue uh, to be so and, that, and that's why they've covered the country an unprecedented feat that one source western side of mexico the drug trafficking world has covered the country not just with one but two of these horribly horribly damaging drugs and and so i began to realize that the story was connected but also radically different it was very very different stuff going on and we're seeing it now in many reflections our our overdose death records are now you know well over a hundred thousand uh, annually i believe we're seeing it too in in the widespread homelessness along with that drug addiction mental illness and tent encampments and and so it just kind of one thing kind of led to the other and since then i'm a basically a beat reporter at heart i don't stop reporting on a story once i've published it i keep and so i've been doing many many interviews just to keep myself current and it's clear to me that this is uh, what I wrote about in The Least of Us has not changed. It's really gotten kind of more pronounced, more enhanced. And people are recognizing it more now because COVID is, seems to be in some kind of retreat. And now there's other issues that people are focusing on. There's so many threads here that I, I found just mind-blowing in this book. Can, can we start with the, I think, the early one, which is a little bit the shame the pathway towards from getting a normal prescription for pain and how that, this goes a little bit back to dreamland, but how that gets you to heroin. Can you talk a little bit about the pharmaceutical companies and how maybe even if we start out being generous, an idealistic way of, of helping people? There was a lot of all of that early, early on and that uh, there was a lot of greed. There was a lot of idealism. There was a lot of, uh, now we can do something about pain. The idea was, particularly among pain specialists, that we did a poor job of treating pain, which is true, and that we now had, there was almost this messianic fervor that we now had this tool. We'd always had this tool with which we could eradicate pain, literally thought that, you know, this is something that derives from the central nervous system of our of our brains but we could now eradicate pain through with one tool that we've always had if we'd only learn that it wasn't as bad as we always thought it was and these were opioids and drugs derived from the opium poppy eventually these drugs could now be used this was the this was the the buzzword the buzz message which was these drugs could now be used on virtually everybody anybody who was in pain any pain patient because they were now known to be virtually non-addictive when used to treat pain. Now, this was not known. This was a, an invention, a, kind of a, a wishful thinking on some people's part and on other people's part, just pure out and out, you know, fraud. Right. Um, yeah. But 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 this became, and then that was married with the pharmaceutical companies who took it to more of a fraudulent level, in my opinion, with very, very aggressive sales techniques, visiting particularly primary care family docs who didn't really have much background in pain, but we're seeing this this new message that these were now useful for for almost any kind of pain and that that their patients too were coming to them a kind of a change in American health patient consumer the health consumer, which was to say that if I go to the doc, I better get 
uh, prescription. That's not that's the successful, you know, that's a successful appointment. And so what you began to see is a marriage of the pain specialists and the and the pharmaceutical companies and their very, very aggressive techniques, a real increase, huge increase in the number of sales, tripling basically in the in the in the number of salespeople uh, selling this stuff um all across the pharmaceutical in- industry, but certainly in those selling the opioids. And so you began to see almost like in by 96 when Oxycontin comes out. You begin to see like opioid prescribing take off like an airplane leaving a tarmac and it just doesn't stop rising for another 12, 15 years, something like that. And and the, the supply of these drugs is, are everywhere and people are given them for things that never would have, they never would have been given them before, but also it's more important, more importantly, they're also given refills very, very easily. And so if you finish you know, these pills are really, really excellent. These are drugs that are excellent for very short-term, very intense pain, like post-surgical pain. They are not good for prolonged pain treatment and this kind of thing. And, and what you began to find is people using them that way, going back to the doc saying, hey, I need more. And soon refills became a big part of the story, I think. And eventually you began to see all across this country because doctors were badgered some were went very reluctantly into this new world others eagerly embraced it but whatever the case it was happening all over the country began to see people all over the country now addicted to these pain pills and eventually the underworld i would say among the very first was the were the guys from the town that i wrote about from the small village in mexico who had a very expansionary business model they couldn't kill each other you know once they're competing for a market they know where each other's mothers live, so they're not going to be killing each other. That would just create all kinds of havoc down back home. So they have to constantly look for new markets. And you see them begin to expand through the 90s and then across the Mississippi River into the areas that really where the opioid epidemic really began, like Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia, Tennessee, place Indiana, after like 90. 899, 2000, right in there, you really begin to see that. People switch to heroin because because the pills get very expensive. For some, they lose their insurance. Others, the doctors just shut them down, say, no, oh my God, what have I done? I've created an addict here. And so they very, very, you know, alarmed, they shut that down. Uh, there are a lot of different stories, but basically people have to th- then switch to the, the black market. And the black market for these pills is a dollar a milligram. And so if you're using 200 milligrams a day of these pills, you have to spend 200 bucks a day. You can't do that. This black tar heroin that these guys from Mexico had perfected, many people had perfected, but this this one expansionary system was really important and all that. They arrive in the area just by very, really a, a real coincidence. They arrive in Columbus, Ohio, about the time OxyContin is really taking hold, and they see this brand new market for heroin that the pills promise. And that's basically what happens. And you see that multiplied with different actors, different companies, different traffickers, but you see that story multiplied and, and spread pretty much all across the country in the next 15 years Be- or something. Because the heroin is much cheaper. It's much cheaper, as potent, if not more so than the pills. After a while, pretty soon, people's tolerance is so high that they begin shooting up OxyContin. They begin dissolving it and, and putting it in water and shooting it up. And once you're using the needle, You've crossed that Rubicon kind of, and after a while, you're just like, oh, well, it's a fifth the price to get high all day on this heroin. That's that's a no-brainer, as everyone would tell me. I feel like you did a really 
empathetic job of taking the reader in both books, in Dreamland and here in The Least of Us as well, and taking the reader from a person who is not addicted to anything, just leading a normal human life, has a root canal or has a, you know, you you had the one doctor who had the headache at night and they got, you know, the pharma's been giving them all these free pills. And he's just like, I'm just going to take one to help me get through this headache and, you know, get my work done so I can help people, right? Taking them from that to buying now heroin. And I think a lot of us who don't intersect with this world can look at that journey and see maybe the starting point and the ending point and ascribe within that some deep moral failing or some human frailty and weakness that like I don't have, right? Like that doesn't exist in me. I feel like you did an amazing job of humanizing that and getting the reader beyond that. Well, that was really the effect of the the process I just described was to create whole new markets of people who are now addicted to opioids. And so, yes, you had people who had car accidents, a, a lot of high school or college sports injuries. It seemed to me that 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 football almost became a gateway to heroin addiction at a certain point in some areas because people were football creates chronic pain and and back then the doctors were just like just take these pills you know and and you began to see families also a lot of these families had no conception of what to do once their loved one child but even you know husband grandpa you know no conception of what to do and really the effect was to maintain massive nationwide silence and that's another reason why this spread so effectively is that People all across the country were just afraid to talk about it. And because they had grown up thinking, well, this is for the the guy with no teeth living under the overpass. And now my son is lying to me. He's stealing my stuff. He's like giving me all kinds of lies about how he needs money to go here. And he's using it for it. It became people really were overwhelmed by the feeling that somebody had occupied some force, evil force had occupied their loved ones. It was no longer the same same person people lived in terror of late night phone calls that the that that loved one was now dead or in jail or whatever sometimes people were really relieved to find that their loved ones were in jail because they knew at least they weren't going to be dead you know and this was going on this began again in those areas you know with maybe columbus ohio was like almost the the central point um, but then it spread. By the time I was on to it, it was all over the country. It was happening in Charlotte. It was happening in Orange County, California, Florida, uh, many, many, many places on uh, uh, Native reservations. It was it was up in the Northwest. I was everywhere uh, because the supply was so so vast and and unrelenting all across the country. Throughout the book, you had this discussion about sugar. And I'm I'm going to admit to you, I love your writing and I love your reporting, and I I I feel like I get your style, like it's you really speak well to me. But I I wasn't sure where you were going with the sugar thing. I kind of got it, and then it started to like because you you kept coming back to it throughout the book, and it started to make sense in a way that I think people can relate to. The idea that most Americans are in some sense addicted to sugar. McDonald's pummels us every day with, you know, ads. And 
what happened was all of that marketing and approach and 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 spiking of your hamburger with a little bit of sugar. The fentanyl people learned that lesson, right? It's, it's like an American. I think, I think what I was lesson. trying to say was something that I had tried to do in in Dreamland towards the end, but I didn't have enough space, and really, but nevertheless, thought it was absolutely essential. And so, when this book with the least of us, I said, "Okay, now I'm going to really do this now," and that is to write about the toxic soup of addictive, legal addictive stuff that has become massively aggressively marketed to us in your and my lifetimes. This did not exist in the, I wouldn't even say in the late 90s so much or in the, in the early 90s, but has over the last 20, 25 years has become more and more pronounced with all these different things that are highly addictive given our brain chemistry. One thing I wanted to do in the late least of us was talk about the brain chemistry that allows you and me and everybody to be that to have the potential for being that addict eating from the trash, right? And and we are prodded, manipulated, plucked all kinds of ways by mass marketing to obey those those reward those deep deeply evolved from millennia impulses to to want stuff that make us to give us that that rush of good feeling and dopamine and all that and sugar is certainly one you know one of the most recent ones though is I'll get to sugar in a minute but the, the really is alarming to me is the uh the gambling apps now that you see on any sporting event every athlete seems entitled to go on and and convince people that gambling via app is somehow a good thing to do. I think that's an outrageous development should never be allowed. I'm not sure how that's that's legal. It should not be because gambling is is the all in a line of, you know, pornography, video games, gambling, Facebook likes, social media, on and on and on. And sugar is one of the most, the ones that's been most, that's been used longest. People have understood the, the profound desire. We, you know, we developed a love of sugar because early on in the evolution of the human brain, we got it so rarely. And now we get enough sugar in a day that, or in a week that would really correspond to as much sugar as a as our ancestors hundreds and thousands of years ago would get in a year. We have that desire. And so I wanted to talk about that. Plus, I felt you get this, this panorama, right? You start with the Facebook engineer, the casino designer, and the and the and so on. And out at the edge of all that is the Sinaloa drug cartel, right? The the drug cartels down in, in Mexico, they're all doing the same thing, which is trying to manipulate our brain chemistry. And once you understand that and understand a little bit of me- uh, neuroscience, I believe my feeling is you can be a freeborn American again. You can you can say, I understand what is going on here and I can take intentional actions to not participate. And that's that's what I think we've done in our household. We don't buy junk food. We certainly don't gamble. Um, there's all these other, these things that we've kind of like stepped back from understanding that that's what they're, they're all about. And so that, to me, that was a, a, a part of the story that I really, and, and sugar is like one of the most basic things that is highly addictive, not to the extent of heroin, but you know, it hits the same brain receptors. I mean, they there's the experiment I talk about in, in the least of us in Princeton, where they got rats dependent on sugar and then gave them naloxone. Naloxone is the 
almost miracle drug that will bring you back from an opioid overdose, but it'll send you very quickly into withdrawals. And with the rats, you give sugar-dependent rats naloxone, and it sends them into withdrawals, the same as it would do with a heroin addict. And it means that the sugar is hitting those same receptors that that heroin hits. You know, so. I found it stunning. It was just a one line in the book about how McDonald's, for example, hasn't changed their logo in in years or yeah. decades. These are all these are prods. These are, are impulse, you know, creators. Yeah, they're, they're, they're things that, in a sense, tap into, like when you see that at the time of the day when you're kind of hungry, it automatically translates to, well, I would really like a cheeseburger and fries. And everybody understands the no friction idea behind use. Make it as easy as possible to use this stuff. And that's why you see it at every off-ramp, every you know Burger Kings at, at all these different intersections and so on. Make it easy to use. Sodas, very easily available in the middle of a grocery store. Yes. Now we have humans who, because of our evolution, are kind of primed to uh, be exploited by this the release of chemicals in our brain. You take the pill companies pumping out and recommending doctors prescribe more and more of this stuff. They wind up getting pulled back and, and you see people transferring to heroin. Now enter in this fentanyl thing. The thing that blew my mind in your book is the story about the cop who just ordered the fentanyl from China. I'm looking at that going, this is the internet age now transferred over to something else. This is the, you know, this is the world is flat, uh, the end of big, you know, and in some ways this has got to be a, a threat to the cartels. But on the other hand, in a way that is absolutely devastating to humans. Yes. And I, I would say for the actually the Mexican drug cartels figured out a way, though, of making it a benefit to them and acing out the, the Chinese in a sense. The Chinese yeah, couldn't. Yeah. And that has to do with the fact that Mexico, it did that with the United States. And that's because we share a 2000 mile border and free trade. The countries share that. And so they were able to begin to make it themselves. And China was really cutting back and prohibiting a lot of companies from making it at a certain point. And so the Mexicans basically stepped in and bought the chemical ingredients for fentanyl from the Chinese, made it themselves in quantities that are, again, as I say, staggering, just beyond anything. We now have the whole country covered. You have fentanyl in Maine, you have it in Skid Row, LA, you have it in Oklahoma, you have it everywhere, Michigan. And that is only possible because of the Mexican traffickers being able to produce at these quantities and smuggle in these quantities through walls, I, I might add. Most of that stuff comes through border crossings. It doesn't come on the backs of somebody walking through some canyon somewhere. It's it's in, in trucks. You get this kind of like globalization of the trafficking world where everybody's looking for sourcing. And it used to be you just grow it. But now you have to find the sourcing and they don't make all these chemicals in Mexico. So yeah, but they do have the, the essential idea is you no longer need land or sunlight or rainfall. What you need is shipping ports as a trafficker. Now you can get any kind of a chemical you want from shipping ports if you have if you control them. And they do, particularly two on the western side of Mexico. You can get chemicals from China, from India, but 
really the world, I mean, if you want to, and and their control of, of those shipping ports is pretty and vast. You know, you're getting shipping containers loads of these chemicals coming in, which explains why you have fentanyl and meth, by the way, in New England and in LA and in Oklahoma and Michigan and everywhere else. It's because the trafficking world down there is so sophisticated is so well moneyed and armed with guns they get from here, by the way. And the other thing is this, down in Mexico, on the western side of Mexico, there are, there's an enormous now knowledge base of how to make these drugs. There's not just a few folks and, you know, they employ uh, university chemists, trained chemists, and, and now many, many, many people know how to make this stuff very, very easily now. And, and that's, that's kind of what lends itself to this. It starts out from China, but event, but China could never, they, they would mail it in pounds at a time, like a pound here, a pound, but you would never be able to cover the country in, in the way that they, we now see these two drugs covering the country, mailing it through the mail from China. It comes from Mexico in truckloads. That's how you get to that point. There's two images that I had in my head as I'm reading this. The, the first one is of taking a Dayquil or a NyQuil and and just thinking that at some point in the past, these had to be locked behind because people would go and buy them off the shelves and use that to make meth. And how just quaint that seems. The second image I had in my head was that that scene in Breaking Bad where they're trying to steal the one barrel of chemicals and how that was like a coup. These both seem quaint compared to the volume that we're talking about today, right? right. Like, the yeah. volume is insane now. No, it's it's ridiculous. And, and it's because they can get access to these chemical precursors. I interviewed a, a guy for the book who was a dealer, and I won't say where or his name. He one time developed very uh, good relations with his Mexican source and was concerned that the methamphetamine that this guy was uh, selling was driving his customers crazy. We can talk about that in a little bit. But basically, the point of the story was the guy said, well, you need to come down and, and see how we make it. And so the guy goes, well, OK, I guess I will. And and so he goes down and it's like out in the middle of nowhere. I couldn't believe that story. Yeah. <laughs> an hour or two south of, of the border, which is in, in the desert, which is basically anywhere from El Paso to San Diego. And there was this concrete thing about the big as a Costco with 20, 30 people. And, and he says, making more methamphetamine than you could possibly imagine. Huge stacks of, of rolls of one pound bundles of meth, like firewood, you know, all this enormous bins, like you said, like in an agricultural, like on a farm, which you would, you would have bins of oranges or tomatoes filled with precursor chemicals. It was going within complete easy to find it was oh, so easy to find it you know it was complete protection clearly not molested by any law enforcement to speak of that's towards the more sophisticated end of, the, of that you also find many many other labs that are more rustic in the middle of the countryside out in sinaloa or durango places like that the quantities that they're able to make is just stunning at one point uh, not too long ago about five six months ago I uh, was in conversation with a guy who I believed him when he told me he was a, a supervisor of a meth lab for about six years down in Mexico. He had quite a bit of knowledge. And he said his lab would make about five tons a month. That's just one lab of, of meth. And there's hundreds of these labs, you know. And so it's it's like this remarkable 
ability, but made possible again by the quantities of precursors that you're seeing now uh, come in through those ports. I'm 49. I think you're around my age, right? I'm 63. Okay, you're a little bit older than me. You, we lived through the war on drugs. You know, the Nancy Reagan, just don't use drugs, like the whole. Yes. I'm going to say something. I don't think you said this in the book, but I want you to react to it. It feels like we have lost the the middle part of the war on drugs. Not not necessarily the how do we prevent addicts from getting started and not necessarily how do we help people who are strung out get back into society, but the middle part where we're just going to like stop the flow of drugs. Yeah. You said you have misgivings about uh, legalizing marijuana. I share your misgivings. You said you had misgivings about some other things. You know, you you talked about gambling here. I share those misgivings. It it feels like that middle part, we've almost acceded to the notion that there's always going to be now. I disagree that that needs to be the case. Okay. That is the case but because this gets down to two countries, really. Yes. Mexico and the United States, uh, and neither one has fully understood its role and and what it needs to do. And these are hard things to do. If they were easy, maybe they'd have been done. Mexico needs to really address the very deep corruption that is going on in their country. They have a perfect opportunity to do something profound about the supply of drugs because no longer in Mexico are you growing drugs. Right. So before these were Mexico is a vast, vast country, mountainous country. You have to find all the marijuana grows here and, and, and all the poppy grows. And that's very difficult. Now, really, all you need to do to have a profound effect on the amounts of, of drugs that are being able to be made in Mexico is attack, I would say, maybe 10 shipping ports, as well as the Mexico City airport. This involves concerted attention, well-paid uh, you know, high morale among the among the cops doing this, but it's not. I don't. I can't see how it's is as difficult as it was before. Will those traffickers go to other countries and find ways of making drugs in other countries? Of course, but that's that's the point. That's not the point. The point is you you cut off. You begin to really address the problem in Mexico, where they have easy access to this 2,000-mile border. It's a process of, of of the same way of dealing with crime in certain neighborhoods. You deal with crime in this neighborhood, it might move to another neighborhood, but then you deal with that then. We've got into this idea of, of saying, well, we if we can't solve the problem entirely, then small steps aren't worth taking. And that's nonsense. That's a completely contrary to how I see social change and effective approaches really Ha happening. On the other hand, the United States, we have vast amounts of weapons. I was going to ask you this. Yep. Going south, going south. I don't believe it's a coincidence. Maybe it is. But, do, you know, the vast cartel, savage cartel wars in erupted in 2005. That's where you really begin to see this the unbelievable savagery. This is a year after I left Mexico. I couldn't believe what I was watching from the safety of LA. That happens to be, coincidentally or not, a one year after we let our assault weapon ban lapse, which is 2004. Now, they assault weapons have become clearly the weapon of choice. 
of all those those warring factions down in down in Mexico. And I believe it's one reason why one of the things that ensures their impunity to be able to make methamphetamine in this staggering amounts and make make fentanyl in these catastrophic amounts are the weapons that are bought very easily and smuggled in small amounts. No one's smuggling, you know, huge truckloads of weapons. It's more like a trickle, but every day, all day long, everywhere along the border, you know, five guns, 10 guns, many boxes of ammo, all that kind of stuff. And to me, we have never done anything about that. I really think that these two steps, you know, as well as kind of a collaborative approach to, to this stuff that, that really involves both countries come beginning to work together in ways that they never really had. No president in my lifetime, certainly not in the time when I was down in Mexico, but no president in my lifetime has really achieved that new relationship with Mexico that we need. And Mexico has, I'm sorry, Mexico has never been part of the drug war. If you read a great book called The Dope by Ben Smith, just out in the last few months, it's really a history of what's the drug, the drug trade and drug prevention efforts down in Mexico. He makes it very, very clear that from the 50s on, Mexico has always been kind of a leaky boat. You're trying to bail the water out of the boat and and, and Mexico, it's just like there's been no attempt to really it's, uh, seriously address this. On the contrary, certain parts of the Mexican government have been actively involved in promoting uh, the drug cartels and profiting from them, like I think too. It seems to me like if we want to try to understand, and tell me if this is right, because I, I, I'm i trying to understand myself. If we want to understand the difficulty that Mexico has in dealing with their side of, of this problem, we have to say, what would it take to deal with the gun side of our problem? And I think we can see how that's like a multi-fat, like that's not a simple thing. There's many like levels of culture intersecting with finance, intersecting with greed, intersecting with And we, one thing is also to to more uh, fully fund ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which is a bugaboo for the gun lobby. They, they don't want that agency to really have a lot of power or, or ability to maneuver. They don't want those guns, once they're, they're seized, to be able to be tracked back to whatever gun store sold it and make that public, make that information public. Last I, last I checked anyway, this was not possible. All of that needs to be part of the mix. And you're right. It's a very, very difficult thing to do in this in this country and particularly in the current climate we have. But if you want to do something about meth at historic low prices and everywhere in the country, driving people to insanity all over the country and fentanyl killing people in record numbers in, again, all across the country, that has to be part of the mix. And we also have to get our minds around the idea that, yeah, these are global traders. They may go somewhere else, but it's going to be much more difficult for them to get their dope in from, from say, Panama than it is from Sonora, Mexico, right across the border from Arizona. You know, And so I think that we need to understand that it's the small steps. One of the great themes of the book was it's the small steps towards larger goals, that, you know, not not looking for the magic answer that's going to solve all our problems. That's where we need to start. And we, not, we, we, we've been prohibited from starting because we have this idea like, well, it won't solve the whole problem. No, it won't. It'll just be a one step on the, on the trip towards getting there. Sam, let me, let me ask you to talk a little bit about 
what it means to hit rock bottom now in a world where the the drugs are so cheap and readily accessible. You talk a little bit about this in the book, but you, you know, in the past, the idea of, you know, family shame being a motivator, that's something that addicts can can get can get beyond. But the idea of like losing everything or becoming bankrupt or living on the streets, these were hitting rock bottom for a lot of people. And there's almost an intersection of the price being so low now that makes rock bottom different. That that struck me. The potency of these drugs too is is essential in all this. First of all, one of the things I think is very important is to understand that these synthetic drugs, meth and fentanyl, change almost everything we ever thought about drugs, how to make them, smuggle them, who uses them, how much profit you can make from these drugs, how to treat addiction, all of that, everything changes. And one of them most definitely is the concept of rock bottom or readiness for treatment, how you get to that. My feeling is now with these drugs on the street, certainly with fentanyl, but also with meth, that rock bottom is death. You see it in tent encampments, by the way, all across this country, where you see people living in filth, pimped out, beaten, living feces, unsanitary, you know, just a horrible exploitation going on. And and these drugs do a masterful job of what every drug of abuse does. But these drugs do a masterful job because of the potency and because of their prevalence of thwarting our basic instincts for survival that we all that kept us alive, that kept the species alive, kept every animal alive, really. You find that those that that people in that in that situation, even as temperatures turn lethal, say, no, no, I, I'm fine here. I don't want to be going into treatment, I don't go into housing, none of that, you know. And and so rock bottom is now death. You see it all the time. You see people during the winter, we're about to see this now again, I think, where people are going to be freezing to death in their tent encampments rather than leaving. Uh, the drugs behind. People would rather, you know, pimped out again, beaten. All of that means that we have to understand that these drugs are radically different from any plant-based drug that ever came before. Potency, prevalence, supply, price, all of that readiness for treatment is another concept that I think is really needs to be revised. The idea is you have to be ready to be treated for your addiction before it can be successful. That is true. The problem is how where are you going to develop that readiness? And it's clear that in tent encampments, you are not finding people developing that readiness. That on the contrary, they are refusing treatment. What this means is I believe that we need to be in the in the business of forcing people away from the drugs. That means arresting them. That means decriminalization has actually been a very harmful thing in a lot of cases all across this country because it's taking place in a time of fentanyl and meth and not in a time of, you know, cocaine and and whatever else that came 15 years earlier. All of these ideas fentanyl and meth bring up for rethinking and reconsideration, I think, and, and readiness for treatment. It's just not happening. And rock bottom is certainly death now. I feel like you're saying something that I just want to pause on for a second because it's so radical a shift. I hope people go out and read this book. I feel like having read Dreamland, having followed your work, I knew a lot about this topic. This book, it took everything from Dreamland and just 
10x'd it up. I feel like you're making this argument that is very counter culture almost. Yes. You're not making it from a religious conservative prudish standpoint. You're not saying, oh, those kids these days. I feel like you're saying we have a society that in every aspect is being primed for addiction. And within that society, we are pouring the most addictive substance possible into it at rock bottom prices. That means we got to rethink everything. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, there's all those other ideas are are, are possible. That's not the one I come, that, that they're not what, how I get to this. It's 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 to say that that fentanyl is killing people in record numbers. The meth that's now being produced out of Mexico is so potent. I believe it's really a potency question now. The book came out a year ago, uh, questioning why is this meth driving people to mental illness and homelessness all across the country. And I think that no one was considering that question before the book came out. And now people are really considering it. And I think a lot of people have come to the conclusion that simply that they are able to make meth in a far more potent way now with a method that's new to them of making methamphetamine. And so now you're seeing people out of their minds in tent encampments, in uh, a horrible effect on homelessness that these drugs have had. And what that means is that we just simply have to rethink. We're, we're applying pre-fentanyl, pre-meth ideas to a moment that meth and fentanyl have radically changed. I mean, just everything. There isn't really almost anything that's the same now with this stuff. And so uh, what it means is that I believe compassion is getting people off the street, arresting people. Now, that, of course, is counter to a lot of the ideas of, of that we're seeing all across this country, particularly in the last few years of criminal uh, justice reform. And, and some of those ideas are very, very valid, and they're very uh, important to, to move forward on. But we also have to understand that the more time you are left on the street as a drug addict today, the more chance your, your brain is going to be permanently damaged. We don't have the luxury of time. Fentanyl, meth will drive you mad and fentanyl will kill you before you ever develop the readiness for treatment. Once you are away from the dope for weeks, in jail, basically, is kind of what I'm suggesting may need to happen. You are then able to think more clearly and then you can develop readiness for treatment, embracing sobriety in a way that's simply not possible on the street with the drugs that we now have in the quantities and potency that we now have all across all across this country. It's a remarkable transformation and it's happened relatively recently and especially while we were focused on on COVID. And and so now we need to come to an idea that this is what's going on. We need to really think about that. And this is because the type of drugs people manufacturing these have figured out how to make them particularly nasty, right? I believe it's actually how to make them in such quantities that you can never get away from it. You know, right. I believe the methamphetamine story is is, is profound because this, this new mental illness that it's, it's meth-induced psychosis, which is going on all across the country, every place I talk to, you're seeing this, is really possible because you cannot get away from it. It's so prevalent. It's so much, you know, and that really speaks to how many of these ingredients 
the trafficking world of Mexico can get access to through those shipping ports down to Mexico, how easily they can smuggle that stuff up here, and then how it's uh, just spread across the country. We've never had this. We've never had one source cover the country with not one, but two of the most potent drugs we've ever, we've ever, we've ever seen. And one will drive you mad, make you incapable of, of acting in any rational way. Fentanyl, it's shown very clearly, will kill you. You know, there's this fascinating, wonderful concept in addiction recovery called the gift of desperation. And this uh, corresponds to another time. But the idea was you'd gone through so much, degraded, so ground down, betrayed so much love and trust in your life that you get to a point where you are desperate to do anything, to get away from this stuff. And the problem is that meth will drive you mad and fentanyl will kill you before you ever have a time to get to that kind of desperation. It's just not, it's just not happening. And you can see this most most clearly, again, in the tent encampments that are all all now in many, many parts of, of the country. If I am a mayor, a city council member, a local advocate for places, and I, I care about my community, there's lots of stories in your book about people doing amazing things. What would your kind of in closing here, beyond awareness and an understanding and a certain amount of human empathy what are you what are you telling local officials? What are you telling people who care about their communities to be doing to take those incremental steps, those those next things? What's, what's our part in this? It's a big question. there's there's a, a lot of things, but I believe that we now need to use law enforcement as the leverage that it always has been to push people away from dope. It's a myth to say that nobody ever, people have gotten sober because of law enforcement for decades. I've interviewed so many people who say the best day of my life was when a cop arrested me, got me off the street away from the dope that I would never have the ability to do on my own. And I, I was meeting people like this, writing Dreamland all the time. We have decided that we want to get away from using law enforcement because law enforcement somehow was a continuation of the war on drugs, which was a failure. I would suggest to you that the if, if the war on drugs was a failure, it was uh, to the extent it failed, it was not because we used law enforcement. It was because we only use law enforcement. And I think we did that with the pain pills too, right? How do we cure American pain? Something that's derived from the central nervous system of the human brain? One tool, pain pills for everybody. Doesn't matter the background, you know, the same thing we're trying with, we tried with, with law enforcement. Law enforcement has a pivotal, crucial, essential role in for many reasons, but one of them, and we don't probably have time to talk about all of them, certainly supply interdiction is one, and supply reduction is harm reduction, because the less you have availability to use, the less harm is going to be created. But I would say that one of the things that I think many communities need to consider, and I think these two drugs are making it essential, used to think it was a good idea, now I think it's an essential idea, and that is rethinking how jail is used. Jail, as you, as you know, there's three chapters in my book about a county in Kentucky that has rethought jail and recovery pods in jail, uh, meaning jail is not 
what you've always thought it was not a play and we've never used it well it's been a kind of an extension of the throw away the key thing where you just throw people they vegetate for month weeks or months then they get out and they're not there's nothing much that's gone on during your time in jail that's been positive at all i want to get a i i, I think we're, we're in a time where we need to these drugs are calling on us to get away from that idea make pods in within jail places where people can can begin their recovery and and that means classrooms that means um ged classes that means uh criminal addictive thinking classes that means 12-step meetings run by inmates there's all kinds that means taking folks who who are who are just coming off the street and medically supervising their detox so they're not just thrown in a in a, in a tank and allowed to just kind of sink or swim there's there's so many things that are now being tried at the county level primarily it's at the county level where that that involve using jail in a different way and the importance of jail is that you can put somebody there and they cannot leave when the dope tells them to. So often in many communities, you we build treatment centers and then we say, hey, would you like, uh, would you like, uh, we've got the treatment bed. How about the, you know, and people are in, in the tent encampment going, no, I don't want it. Or even when they say yes, they can opt in. Well, they can very easily opt out. And this is what you're finding all across the country as well, because these drugs just do such a masterful job of thwarting that. So there's a, a, a jail now opening in Columbus, Ohio, that I very much want to go see. It sounds like it's kind of the, the jail of the future. Um, again, this is all an experimental phase. This is all people stumbling, realizing what was tried before wasn't working trying to find new ways of moving forward given the drugs that are on the street given the fact that they most likely will build, will be on the street for some time you're finding counties in particular uh in certain areas where it's been the problems have been really pronounced for a long time trying to figure out new ways of doing it. i think drug courts are also essential that's a place where you can continue supervision of people law enforcement supervision of people with an eye towards them getting not sending them to prison but to getting them a, a, away from 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 dope but on on the outside now what this also involves is that as in the the county kenton county in in kentucky that i wrote about in the, is that you need we need to develop communities of recovery recovery ready communities where people have a better chance of succeeding on the outside because it doesn't do much good on the inside of a jail and to do all this great work and fascinating work and work that's really now necessary given where uh where these drugs are if we don't have easier access to housing and make it easier to get back your driver's license uh pay off probation fines i mean there's a whole long list of things that that amount to a continuum of care on the outside that are really now becoming uh essential on the other hand i think that what that means is a benefit to a community is not just that you've turned a negative into a positive. You also create areas where people's volunteer sense can be used. Many people don't never view jail as a place to volunteer because why? It's just a bunch of degenerates, right? You know. And once you have that, what I, what I found in certain areas is once you have these places where people are actually moving, beginning to move forward, it ignites a certain amount of community energy that was now laying, it's now laying dormant.
So that's a very long conversation, and it's probably a conversation could take up a whole whole other hour. And, and I'm happy to do it at some point. But but for the moment, these are the things we need to understand that fentanyl and meth require us to look at reuse, let's say, or reemploy uh, law enforcement in profound ways because that leverage is the, the law enforcement leverage, the threat of going to jail, the threat of going to prison, the threat of a lot of other things is about the only thing we have that really counteracts the profound power over our our, our instincts for self-preservation that these drugs have have exerted. It's hard for me not to think about the idea of people getting that type of law enforcement intervention ending up in a jail like the one in Kentucky where the inmates are holding themselves accountable in order to stay in the program and they're they're moving things along but then exiting back out into a community that's not embracing them not set up for them maybe as just a final word like how how important is it for us you mentioned this in the book we haven't mentioned it in the podcast but this idea that you know, crack cocaine, we could ignore it because it was black people and now it's white people. So it's front and center. I, I think we can look and say that, you know, obviously that was wrong. We have to apply this in a broad sense. Yes, absolutely. How can we become a better society in black communities, white communities across the board? How can we become a better society to help people who are actually working to, to to get out of this, to break out of this. And that's a great question, Chuck. And I think that 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 once you begin to study what what most trips people up, that actually leads to the answer. You know, ease of transportation, for example. So in this county in Kentucky, they take you from the jail when you're leaving to this nonprofit in a shuttle. So they don't put you on a bus to go downtown to meet your old friends, start using again. They put you on a on a shuttle and they take you to this nonprofit where you can get clothes, where you can get eyeglasses, where you can get workout, you can get find other people, mentors, 12-step meetings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's finding ways of making life easier. It's signing people up for Medicaid before they leave jail so that they have health insurance and dental insurance when they leave. Dental insurance, by the way, is a huge part of it because most people on the street, their teeth go to hell. And part of recovery is, is getting better dental insurance. It's getting medically assisted treatment begun while you're in jail and then access to it while you're out. So you have a, a shield against the fentanyl that is always out there now. It's in everything, it seems like. Um, it's so... I think when we study what trips people up, we get come to a better idea. My feeling is too, there's a huge role for um, uh, clergy uh, in in all this and houses of worship of all all kinds to bring people in, maybe in small numbers, not hundreds of people, maybe a family or two at a time. Small, again, this all getting back to the small steps. This was one of the great themes I thought was so important because I saw that with the pill problem, we we wanted a magic answer. What's the magic answer to all human pain? One pill. 
What's the magic answer to all uh, uh, drug trafficking and, and drug addiction? Law enforcement. Well, all of those pills have a central role in pain management. Law enforcement has an absolutely critical role in, in dealing with this, but there needs to be a far greater community uh, effort. And I find it frankly, to be almost exhilarating once people come to understand that they can be part of that solution. And that, yes, it absolutely has to be inclusive, has to include all the neighborhoods of your city or county or wherever it is you live. You have to think in terms of what what addicts need when they most when they're getting out. and and I think that there's so many assets that we simply have not used, clergy being one, just as an example, for um, jail being another, drug courts being a third. There's a many, many ways. There's in, in Portsmouth, Ohio, the banks are working together to, uh, which is the, the town that was I focused on in Dreamland. And the last chapter of The Least of Us is about how Portsmouth, Ohio is doing. Well, one of the many things that that's going on there, it's fascinating to town to go see because it was coming from so far down and has really moved forward in a profound way, I think, is that the banks there, at least two banks, I think, that I'm aware of, are now providing low interest loans and ease of, of uh, application to, to folks who are in recovery who need cars and, and buying used cars, not huge loans, but getting them cars, because that's an essential part of, become, of getting work. And that's a central part of getting your life back together. So my, I, I think this gets into the whole idea of how isolated, fragmented we are as a culture, as a country. The reason I said two tales of America and hope is because once communities get involved in this way, all of a sudden the problems that they thought were so difficult and insurmountable and intractable and they're throwing up their hands, oh, no, we can't do anything. All of a sudden, all those assets that are now dormant, jail banks, you know, churches, whatever, all of a sudden can see a role for themselves and come to life like a, like a flower blooming. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing to think about because it's really been provoked by, by our great isolation, by these horrible drugs that are everywhere now. But it's also got this immense potential for unlocking energy at the community level that to me, is what kept me going in this in this book. I just became enamored with that idea that the small stuff, the least of us, helping the least of us, right? Helping and 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 the small ways we're getting up and working daily, not expecting applause, not expecting to save the world, but but simply moving forward in a, just this profound way that on over a time, over long periods of time create real social change that don't come with all those nasty unintended consequences. Sam Cronones, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in a Time of Fentanyl and Meth. I strongly recommend that everybody get the book, read it. It will open your mind, open your heart, and hopefully inspire you to get involved in your community. Sam, if, if people want to follow your work, what's the best place that they can do that on a regular basis? I'm on all the social media, I guess, that you I have to I follow you on Twitter, as, so I see an that. Author. Yeah, Twitter, Sam Quinones 7. I'm on Facebook at Sam Quinones Journalist. Instagram, Sam Quinones underscore author. <laughs> Let me think. I'm on my website. It's just my name, samquinones.com. And you can find my books 
paperback, hardback, audible, ebook, whatever on all the, the, all the websites that you would normally buy books at basically. Sam, thanks for your reporting. Thanks for, thanks for all that you do. It is a difficult topic, but your book does give me a lot of hope and there's a lot of inspiration here. And I'm, I'm just grateful you took the time to chat with me. Oh, on the contrary, Chuck, this is one of the great podcasts. I love uh, Strong Towns, fantastic idea. And I love the way you do it. And I, I never get tired of these podcasts. It's always good stuff. So I'm very, very honored and happy to be on it with you. So thank you very much. Thank you. And let's keep doing what we can to build a strong town. Take care, everybody. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.